You are in the Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod. Bridget is in the Grotto Pod. Uh, unfortunately, today's guest is not in the Grotto Pod, so we are going to give you a special. This is a great way to couch it there. Uh, by the way, my co-host, Bridget Quinn. I'm looking at you with, like, what's he going to say next? What's he going to say next? I don't know what he's going to say. I, I know what I want to say. Larry Rosen, and welcome to our oh. podcast. Uh, we're going to give you a little, uh, you want to see how the sausage is made? Let's rip off the casing here and discuss. <laughs> we had a guest scheduled for today who... Uh, we were totally prepared for. We were so prepared for. I had read book. his book. I had watched interviews online. I was really excited about this one. Really excited. I notes. And we got stiffed. <clears throat> Stood up like a pimply-faced 15-year-old on his first date. Writers. I like that sometimes. How do you like that? Uh, here's a little clue for you all. Uh, not the walrus was Paul, but that when you book someone, uh, you need to follow up and make sure that it's uh, nailed down. Do they even know they have an interview with you? Our conversation. I like to call it a conversation, actually. I could speculate on what this writer is doing right now, but uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But I, here's the great thing, Larry. I just know he's not We're here. at the grotto. We're at the grotto, and the great thing about being at the grotto, let's say you are uh, recording a podcast that's about writers, writers and on writing. You need one. And you just happen to need a writer. Well, the good thing about the grotto is even on a day like today when the grotto does seem uh, tumbleweed-strewn so and empty, dead. you'll still find some writers sitting around. And that's what we found. We found uh, Fred Vogelstein eating a baguette. Eating a baguette, in yeah. Kitchen. Did you see? It was a nice little setup, and we uh, went in there on Fred and said, Fred, we're in a bind. What you working on? You yeah. want to talk about it? You want to talk about your life, your career? Let you me want tell to talk you, about anything? You want to talk about anything? And yeah. oh, the yeah. date happens to be April 20th. Uh, for all you stoners out there, 20. it's 420. And Fred has some interesting, uh, I don't say interesting things to say, but an interesting experience. He wrote a fantastic piece for the New York Times Magazine, I believe, about his son who has epilepsy and how Fred and his family were able to treat his seizures with um, medical marijuana that they had to obtain from overseas. And it wasn't actually, you know, medical marijuana as cut and dried as walking into the little oh, no, dispensary like with the green all. leaf on no. it. It was the cannabis extract. Correct. So the kid's not walking around zonked out of his gills it all the time. nothing to do with getting high. No impact. Anyway, and that's kind of one of the frustrating things for parents of epileptics um, is that they can't access drugs that are super efficacious for seizures in this country. Right. And, uh, you know, and to piggyback off of that too, Fred was for a long time. So let me give you a little idea of how it's set up here. Uh, BQ and Fred being heavy hitters, big swingers <laughs> have, uh, and offices, offices right next to each other, next yeah. to each other with That's windows, by the way, yep. uh, none of this interior wall stuff nope. for them. Nice offices. I, on the other hand, uh, as a minor league player, I just, you know, kind of grab a desk outside of their offices. So I function not only as a uh, compatriot and peer, but also as sort of a secretary admin type for Sometimes anyone who wants to come see them. Talk to my secretary. And I say, do you have a meeting? Because <clears throat> you're right outside my door. Let me check Ms. Quinn's schedule. Yeah, I like that. I like it a lot, actually. Uh, but, but uh, you know, so I've been out there and watched Fred work on a proposal to uh, turn this article into a yeah. book. And I'd like to talk to him a little about, about the ups and downs of that. And for someone like Fred, who has written for The New Yorker, U.S. News and World Report, New Wired. York Times, Wired, uh, you name it, he's done it covering tech and biotechnology. Uh, about the decision to maybe take on a project that's that personal to him and I what gets invested in that. I think it was, too, and I think he really labored over that for a while. So um, we got Fred. Uh, he, he, I wonder if he's done with his baguette yet. He had a I little, don't know. He had a little, mid-lunch and a little startled. You know, it was very... <laughs> <laughs> we both, Larry and I came up on either side of him, and he was alone in the lunchroom. He was, which is unusual. Usually, it's a, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a salon in the lunchroom, right. generally. Right. Uh, but today, Where just for everyone. I don't know. You know what it is? It's two things. It's 420, oh, which, boy. just so you know, people, is a cluster, you know what, in San Francisco. Right. And Giants game. Is it our Giants game today? I uh, maybe not locally, don't actually. know, and it might be spring break. It's not summer. It's and, nice uh, out. Uh, there's freaking hippies everywhere. I, I got to tell you, man, so it's, it's awful. If you haven't seen *Decline of Western Civilization*, oh, you can boy. find out how I feel about hippies. By yeah. And if you don't know me yet, well, you will, and you'll know how I feel about this <laughs> our, subject. Our Russian gans- gangster. Uh, your Russian Larry. gangster in residence, uh, yeah. in case around a sad little emo boy. <laughs> but Fred might be done with his baguette by now. He had it neatly laid out, which is odd because Fred often comes to lunch with a giant burrito or sandwich, which I love, because let me tell you something, listeners, the grotto is a place of homemade or store-bought salads. I know, so many salads. Salads, salads, salads. When I came in for my vetting, which you have to do to get into the grotto, (laughs) not only did I arrive drenched in sweat because it was 85 degrees outside, but I arrived 
clutching a gigantic falafel wrap. No, but remember, you're going to take me to get a falafel. I am. I am, because now that's passed. But let me tell you, you're already sweaty. You show up with a giant falafel. You are one of maybe two or three guys at the table surrounded by women who are very accomplished and all eating salads. I was not eating a salad, I assure you. I was wondering where the grotto kept its its, uh, gym towels. Because I needed one. It wasn't great. That moment is always terrible. Oh, when boy. you first come to lunch at the grotto, it's when you... And the person sitting next to you has a three-book deal already. Exactly. Like, I'd like to try Always the... like that. Me too. I'm sweaty and eating a falafel. The per- uh, I used to I write about houses. That day, the first person is now a, like a major, major um, broadcaster, a journalist oh. on PRI's The World. And she had just gotten back from being embedded in Afghanistan. Oh, for crying out and loud. And stopped off at the... And, and you're like, at Harvard. hi, I teach science at a high school. Or history, sorry, I teach art history. At a high school. Yeah, it was a I thought I'm never going to get allowed in. And here I you was. are, a few years, just a scant few years later, you are writer famous. You are an <laughs> in-demand in speaker. You know what? Famous. Your famousness fills up 85% of the air in this room. My love for the Golden State Warriors fills up the other 5, 15%. Okay. It's a very small So I'm going to put my 15% out of the way. I'm hoping you yeah. put a little out oh, of the yeah. way, too. And no, then we can have Fred come in here with okay. his uh, really logical, you know, sort of adult type of presence. We were just saying. Uh, And his running shoes. But he seems like more of an adult Fred's an adult. And if you don't believe me, just go to his site, uh, fredvogelstein.com, and check out his author picture. All that's missing is a pipe. Really? It's that. I know. He's awesome. It is that dignified. I love Fred. So uh, let's go get him. I think we've uh, chattered enough. Let's go get Fred. Okay. Here I go. Remember, I'm going because I'm near the door. And I provide the breath mints. Correct. Uh, the esteemed, and I th- believe I just said dignified. Yeah, Fred Vogelstein. Fred, welcome to the Grotto Pod. Thank you for having me. How was the baguette? The baguette was delicious. Fantastic. I made my own lunch today, which is not something I do. I know, and we actually in our intro just discussed that you often have known been known to bring a large burrito or sandwich in for lunch. That is absolutely true. In utter contrast to the salads that most people bring in. Larry, I know. Larry and I just and I, and I just saw my blood work, and so therefore. Mm. Those days are over. I'm oh, sorry no. to hear that. Is it true? It's true. Um. I'm only 39. <laughs> <laughs> so something has gone terribly awry. Something has gone terribly awry. Uh-huh. <clears throat> well, Fred, since we got you here, uh, since I've spent a lot of time by and by standing outside your office marveling at the uh, very neatly, weirdly arranged piles of papers that are in your office. Yes, I have very neatly arranged piles of paper. It's a, it's a <laughs> very – Many, many. It's, a, it's an ancient – filing technique used only by the top journalists in the nation. (laughs) (laughs) Care to to elaborate? (laughs) Well, Fred, I I think I count you among the top journalists in the nation, which is one reason other than than that you happen to be sitting in the uh, kitchen or eating uh, a baguette, that you're here. So, uh, you know, let's delve into the Fred Vogelstein story. And I'm just going to keep saying Vogelstein because up till about two minutes ago, I thought it was Vogelstein. And as a Jew, I apologize. That's totally fine. It is... A mistake that people make all the time. And some of the best stories, by the way, some of the best stories in my career have come simply by being around. Oh, I like it. Please do elaborate. Elaborate, yes. Um, I can't think of one. I honestly can't think of one right off right off the top of my head. Well, it's no, it's false. I was I was at Newsday uh, in 1993, and there was some giant. Um, business deal that got announced, and I wound up covering it simply because I was the only one in the office. Um, you know, it one of those not so memorable stories when you look back, but uh, as things you do during your career that help build reputation, uh, it helped. As Woody Allen said, 90% of life is showing up. Exactly. Did I just step on your line? Yes, I was just about to mention Woody Allen myself. But that's all right. And you know what? I'll bet Fred may have encountered Woody Allen once or twice (laughs) in his life because Fred grew up in New York City. I grew up in New York City. And I saw Woody Allen once or twice. Um, He was actually an idol of mine when I was a kid. uh, Pre-revelation. But but like many of us, I, I lost some faith in him. When I discovered that he's the kind of guy 
that he's not the kind of guy that I thought he was. Uh-huh. No, I loved Woody Allen so much when I was young. I still, you turn on a Woody Allen movie, that's an easy watch for me yeah. still. It is. Depends on the know. era, I think. Yeah. Okay, so Fred, uh, different... Y- I wanted to actually. I was going to jump ahead to Orange County, but since we're in New York City, which is a much more interesting place in Orange County, sorry, everyone who's from Orange County, like me, you, for example, uh, you grew up in Manhattan, right? That's correct. That is correct. East side, West Side. Fred is such a pro that when he speaks, he gets very close to the mic. I love that. I like He's done that. this before. He has done this before. Uh, so, growing up on the East Side of Manhattan. Wait, do we know it was the east side? You just said that. I said east side or west side. I did oh. grow up on the east side of Manhattan. <laughs> Maybe. You're amazing. Maybe I, grew I, know. On, I grew up on a high rise on 89th Street and Madison Avenue. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. What did your parents do? Cool. Um, my dad was in the investment business. Um, and what did your mother do? Um, she tolerated him. Uh, what, which Was that a full-time job? It was a full-time job. So what makes you, growing up there, <clears throat> uh, decide you want to be a journalist? I was... And when did that show up in your life? That showed up... Pretty much right out of, right out of the gates. Uh, I think no, that's wrong. I wanted to go to law school, and then I realized cool. that I wanted to go to law school, and then I realized what I really wanted to do was be a Supreme Court justice. And so I decided that aim high. That mm. I was aiming too high, and I didn't test super well. So, so I <laughs> decided that that was. Wait, not your a good judgment thing. skills didn't test very well, or, or something I, else? N- no, I just tested really, really, really badly. Uh, um, but more importantly, even if I had tested super, super, super well, I think that betting the success or failure of your career on getting nominated to the Supreme Court <laughs> One is of 12 probably spots. not a good idea. No, I mean, what it, it, I became a journalist because what I realized when I was a kid, you know, most of the time when we're told, when we're kids, people say, do what you're good at. And... I'm sort of the exception to that. I I was endlessly curious when I was a kid about how everything worked. Uh, and I loved reading newspapers. Actually, I liked reading newspapers more than books. Uh, and But I couldn't write. Out of, I couldn't write to save my life. I, I couldn't write my way out of a box. And so actually the first English class I took when I got to Pomona College was remedial writing. Uh, because I thought it was really, really important to learn how to do that. And I was amazed that I'd gotten all the way through high school without really learning how to do it. But so at that time, how could you have known you'd be a journalist if you just thought, I need to take remedial writing because i got to be able to write? And give me back up just one second. How did you end up at Pomona from the Upper East Side? Um, I didn't even know New weren't Yorkers you, knew about well, Weren't you somewhere else first? No. Oh. <clears throat> so I was at – I grew – I – Did you go to Snooty Upper, Upper East Side of High School? Um, no. I went to a, I went to a Snooty um, a boarding Connecticut boarding school. school. That's right. Oh, really? And so uh, I – So and, that's how you knew about Pomona. So, so, okay. when, I, so when I graduated, I – or when I was – Thinking about colleges, actually, I thought, where can I go uh, as far away from this place as I can without leaving the country? And my mom's oldest friend, who she came over on the boat with from Europe uh, to escape the Hitler, the Hitler guys, um, to to escape the... um, uh, Holocaust centers, um, the Holocaust clubs. Um, <laughs> it's good radio right now. Is me shaking my head sadly let the, let the from side to side. Let, let the record let the record show that I actually know exactly what those are. Okay. Uh, yes. uh, she and uh, her friend Sylvia um, and their families were on the USS Exeter out of Lisbon in 1941, wow. and uh, they landed in New York. And then Sylvia and her husband moved. Uh, from Brooklyn to Huntington Beach, and so they were they were out there, and um, my dad had done some business out there, and we'd gone out there when I was uh, ten years old to do a trip to kind of see Los Angeles and San Francisco and the sea lions in Monterey, and I fell in love. Uh, with the entire West Coast and knew when I was 10 that I was going to figure out a way to live there. And as for Pomona, um, I 
knew I couldn't get into Stanford. Um, and in those days, uh, you know, it's the only time in my life where being like a white Jew from New York actually like made me a diversity candidate. <laughs> and in those days, you actually could get into Even Pomona. Even in L.A.? Even in Los Angeles. Uh, wow. Well, Pomona, you know, it's inland. Um, oh, I was going to interject there for a second. To You reminded me telling that story as someone who comes from the East Coast, too, but has lived on the West Coast for, I don't know, 40 years now. We forget what sort of vision people on the East Coast have of California. You know, we have to slog through it every day, but that first time you come to California, first time we came was March, and we went swimming in March because we could. It was amazing. On the other hand, hand, as uh, somebody once said to me, uh, you know, about Los Angeles, yeah, 16 million people on the beach with their boards. That isn't really that isn't really going on either. Right. Well, we quickly found that we had been lied to, but so. But I I, I fell in love I fell in love with Los Angeles uh, when I was a kid and really wanted to be there. And so it's so un New Yorker of you. Um, it's a kind of New Yorker, especially yes. no. It was it was not. It, they weren't that many people I knew uh, who went west. Uh, mm-hmm. I would I mean most people had no idea what Pomona College was. Right. Um and people looked at me funny when I said I was going to Los Angeles. I mean, I remember this for me this was 1979. I mean, I my first year at Pomona College was 1980. And so not that many people from the East Coast were going. Oh yeah, that's the part I left out. That everyone dreamed of California, but everyone who went to California was soft. Oh yeah, without question. Yeah, and I that, have the, that's a Woody Allen movie. Anti-intellectual and soft. Right. Yeah, well, that, exactly. Um, I went. There, I went there. I went there for the waves, <laughs> dude. <laughs> Although I think it's worth saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, Fred, that you were friends of Pomona with Vikram Chandra. I was. So you know, not an intellectual or literary slouch. Well, I'm not saying it was based in reality. No, no, I'm not either. I'm no, I mean I. It's, it's the, 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 one of, one of the, but one of the things that. Pomona was an amazing place back then in particular because the difference between Pomona then and Pomona now was that they took, I think, one in five or one in six back then, and now they take one in 20 or one Mm. in 25. I think it's one of the hardest schools in America to get into. It is really hard to get into. And so it was a very competitive place back then, but because it was – still drawing a lot of its students from California and Southern California in particular, um, you know, there just weren't as many people applying. And, uh, you know, what's happened since then is that you not only have an entire national uh, application pool, but you also have an entire international application pool. And so just the numbers have exploded. Um, but Vic was, uh, actually Vic. Vic spent a lot of time with the girl that ultimately became my wife. I wound up, uh, Vic and my wife, Evelyn, uh, met at Pomona and I chased her relentlessly, but she spent a lot more time with Vic Chandra than she did with me in those days. She, they weren't dating, but I, I was convinced that they were. There's a novel in this. There right? is a novel, but Fred is not a novelist. He's a journalist. So mm. when did that kick in? So are you're already thinking of it by now, but you're taking remedial writing. So how are you making this work? Um, I am... Well, initially, I was just trying to learn how to do it. And the more I learned how to do it, the more I liked it. And so, I mean, there's something really quite magical about figuring out what it is you want to say and then saying it in a way that, like, makes everybody pay attention. Uh, and, you know, I grew up, even though, my, even though my dad grew up in the investment business, the thing that I heard the most when I was growing up at the dinner table was how few people he ran into in the world knew how to write. For him, learning how to write the English language well was one of the most important things that you could actually do. Okay, let me ask you something here, though, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I've been thinking about this since you said your father was an investment banker and you went, you know, he seems like he provided pretty well. Was there a concern, though, like, well, Fred's going to be a journalist, say goodbye to the Upper East Side and boarding schools and all that? Was there, you know, was he worried you weren't going to be able to live in the manner that you were accustomed to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that he spent the first half of my career 
trying to introduce me to people who could talk me out of doing it. <laughs> so, Even as you're showing up in some of the best publications in the country. Without question. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'm – when I was younger, before I had children, I found that to be overbearing and – profoundly upsetting and now that I have <laughs> children of my own it seems completely normal and <laughs> sensible. sensible and I'm really really glad that he did it uh, but I um, but so the thing that we did in this particular remedial writing class was we just had to write something every single week and Arden I still remember the guy that taught it his name is Arden Reed uh, Great and, name. and he uh by the time I was done, I suddenly was able to, you know, take 1,500-word papers and do the research and then write the whole paper in the space of an afternoon. Um, and the more I did that, the more I realized how fun and powerful it was. I think I initially thought that I wanted to go work and work at uh, think tanks. Um, like I had this thing where I thought I wanted to go work at Rand or something crazy like that. And then I realized that you needed to get a PhD or five PhDs in order to do that and work in the Defense Department for 50 years. And Is Rand called Rand because of Ayn Rand? No, I don't think so. I okay, think it's good. actually I think it's actually an acronym. Okay, good. I'm relieved uh, to hear that. Um, but it – and so um, – you know, I did a little bit of I did a, little, did a little bit of work for the newspaper at Pomona, which was terrible, uh, and was able to get. When I graduated, I was able to get a job working for the local paper in Huntington Beach. Uh, the Pilot, right? Well, initially it was the Daily. So initially, I did the police logs for the Daily Pilot, and then when the Daily Pilot bought the Huntington Beach Independent, I went over there to be the only uh, writer and reporter that they had. Uh, which was wild. which was delightful and fun because at that point I was 22 or 23 and I was going to city council meetings and covering police brutality cases and going to school board meetings and you know I'd report and write for like three or four days and then on the last day I'd write six stories. Yeah, what's uh, sad is that almost sounds Dickensian now, like nobody does that anymore. But it's a classic story yes. of its era. That's how you did it, That's right? How you became a journalist. And were you making like eight bucks an hour or something? I think I think my salary was sixteen thousand dollars a year. Yes. Did you live in Huntington? Um, I lived. I lived in a bunch of places, including for a while at my mother's friend Sylvia Sachs's uh, house. Sylvia, Sylvia Sachs, Sachs is also the name of a character in a novel. Sylvia, just, or on my other podcast, Sylvia just Sylvia just passed away at, uh, last week or the week before. Actually, um, she was a really, really important person in my life. Uh, uh. But yeah, I my the first place I lived in was in Costa Mesa, and it turned out I was, I was living with, like, one guy that had gone to prison for cocaine um, possession and another guy that had gone to prison for, like, doing this or that or the next thing. And uh, <clears throat> I uh, um, I think I was happy after I'd been there about six weeks to two months when the guy who owned the place sold it and kicked us all out. <laughs> <laughs> so, Fred, you, me, and Larry were living within 25 miles of each other in the early 80s. Which, of course, explains our mutual love our, of the Band X. Oh, that's it! That is of right. Of oh, my course. gosh. Now it's we don't want to go on too much of a tangent, here. though. No, no, no. I mean, we, you had to have been living in Los Angeles in, or the, it's in, the, early 19, in the early 1980s to really understand what X was and what it was about. Um, oh, right, like you lived in Orange County. I think of L.A. and Orange County as the same thing. Bite your tongue. Very, very <laughs> different. Bridget is trying to show, trying trying to show her X tattoo right now. I don't know if you can see it. It's I have no such ooh, tattoo to show. Oh, my gosh. That's <laughs> um, awesome. Let me ask oh you this. Let the, re- let the record reflect that, that Bridget has one of the coolest X tattoos I have ever seen. And that's not to say her oh, tattoo wow. is no longer a tattoo. It's a tattoo that says X. Correct. Correct. Oh, yes, yes, it's not. Let me ask you this, Fred. Uh, Yes, it does get warm in here. Fred is already sweating. We do sweat in the grotto pod. Uh, And I've never actually asked any of our writers in here this before, but I'm curious to know, maybe because you're a journalist, but who were you reading at the time? Who really got you? Who were your favorite journalists? Oh, gosh. Um, When I wasn't reading, when I wasn't reading, I taught, it's funny because I actually taught myself how to be a journalist both by 
you know, working, but also by I think I actually bought like a journalism textbook. Um, so I read that. But when I wasn't doing that, I was reading Halberstam, and I was oh. reading, and I was reading. Uh, oh gosh, this goes back such a long. This goes back such a long way. Um, he's the guy that I remember reading the most. Um, you know, I'm not a big I'm not a big literature person. I should I, I should be, um, and I feel embarrassed to admit publicly that I'm less of one than a lot of people who are in the grotto. Um, I'm really a nonfiction kind of guy, and uh, I'm not sure that's something you have to feel bad about. Um, but uh, but you know, I I read I read biographies and I read. Um, narrative nonfiction anywhere I could get. And, you know, so if I wasn't reading Halberstam, I was reading, you know, I think I read everything that Woodward did. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and you grew up reading the New York Times, but L.A. was also a great paper. In the yeah. Times. Actually, actually, I was reading the – I grew up reading the New York Times, and I can say with a fair amount of authority that in the 1980s, the L.A. Times was a better paper than the New York Times was. Uh, and in fact, I can say with some authority that the LA Times, I think in like 1984, 85, 80, you know, 87, 88 was the best newspaper in the country. Hmm. Uh, I'm not even sure. Absolutely a great paper. I'm not even sure. I, I think maybe the Philadelphia Inquirer in that period of time was just as good because Gene Roberts was running it and was winning Pulitzer after Pulitzer after Pulitzer. But, um, you know, the LA Times was, you know, I don't know that there is a paper – I don't even know if the New York Times today is as good as the L.A. Times was uh, in 1986 or 87. Well, do you think it's possible for a paper to be as good as papers were in the 80s? They just don't have the money. They don't have the resources. Um, I think the answer is yes. Yes, it can be as good? Yeah, I do. I, I think that – I think you're seeing that out of the New York Times. I just think the New York Times is a little – you know has always been a little the new york times is bound by its reputation a little bit and so it's hard for it to do things that um that are super super novel as fast as other places can but like if you look at if you look at what um jeff bezos has done with the washington post uh you know the washington post is a really really good is a really really good example of what having some money uh, can do, but also having the right people spending the money. So Marty Barron isn't as flashy a personality as Ben Bradley, but he is every bit as good. And if you look at like what he's done with the Washington Post in the past three years, it's really astonishing. I mean, I don't think anybody was reading the Washington Post outside of Washington um, uh, back just three years ago. And now it's like, you know, competing nose to nose with the New York Times on covering what's going on uh, in national politics. And do you think? Uh, I don't know when Jeff Bezos, Bezos, how do you pronounce that? I think it's Bezos. Bezos, think it's Bezos. 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 When he first bought it, though, it was treated as sort of a joke. Has there been a little bit of like, or, or like a fear? You know, right? Like, what's he going to do? What's his long game everything. here? Yeah. Actually, I never. I I remember that, and I remember thinking that the people who were saying that were wrong. Um, I remember thinking that um, I guess I, I guess I've met Bezos enough times to know that I don't think he would have bought it had he those kinds of designs on it. Uh, I guess maybe I also was just, and maybe this is a little naive of me, but I guess I was looking at the glass as being half full, which is that, you know, the problem that the Washington Post and all newspapers had uh, as recently as 2012 was not only that they didn't have any money, but that they didn't actually know enough about the new distribution system that was, uh, that is the internet. Um, to actually make use of it in a meaningful way. So, you know, you could, even today, walk into any uh, newspaper and find people who run the presses and who run operations of those 
of those presses who could give you a long treatise on how they work and how you used to need to own forests uh, to have it be cost effective, um, but now like you can do it a different way. Uh, I mean, people, I mean, newspapers. When I started and until fairly recently, you know, owned believed that they needed to own every step of the production, uh, which included actually owning forests in the Northwest. Mm. Um, the problem was that. Uh, the newspaper business changed and the internet became their distribution system and unfortunately there was nobody in the building that knew anything about that and they didn't know how to actually get in the same room as those people either. And what Jeff Bezos did was enable that to happen because all of a sudden like the best engineers on the planet could wind it. He could tap them and say, go work at the Washington hmm. Post. As Fred just demonstrated, his area of expertise is technology. But <clears throat> let's go back. Uh, before all this goes on, there's a lot of people at the Grotto who, like you, are journalists and who are freelance journalists, contributing editors here and there, but a lot of them started like you at newspapers. So when did you leave Daily News for magazines? What, I, I, I was just looking. It's funny because I'm, I'm looking at you and I'm looking. Let me set it up for you, listeners. <laughs> I'm sitting in a tiny room. On one end is me and the other is Bridget and Fred. Actually, Tiny doesn't really begin to describe this. And a very large coffee mug. Correct. And it's me and Fred against Larry. And I'm peeking down at Fred's webpage as he's speaking because, as I said, this is an off-the-cuff type of uh, podcast we didn't have a lot of time to prepare for. So I'm kind of looking down. I I know Fred, so I know what he's done. But like, oh, I want to get Fred to Wired. How are we going to get Fred to Wired? How are we going to get Fred from the Huntington Beach pilot to Wired? So let's get Fred from the Huntington Beach pilot to Wired. Was it the grind? A lot of people we've talked to said, yeah, just daily journalism, yeah, too much of a grind. I wanted to do more in-depth pieces. So what led you out of it? Um, that was a long setup. No, it's totally That's fine. And the, short, and the short answer was that I got fired from the Wall Street Journal. Oh, I had to get you to the Wall Street Journal first. Um, the, uh, that's the, that's, that is actually the short answer. Um, uh, and I can say with the hindsight of now 20 or 25 years, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. That's a uh, Oh, but that's a hard one to go home to dad about. I'll say, yeah. He was probably psyched. Like, oh, Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was painful at the time. I mean, I, uh, I had worked... By that point, I'd been in, I'd been a journalist for more than a decade. I'd worked for I'm, I'd worked for the papers in you know Huntington Beach. I'd moved from there to New Haven to write for the paper there. I'd done a business fellowship at Columbia for a year. I'd wound up writing about the banking industry uh, um, during the banking crisis for um, um, a trade that nobody has heard of uh, called the American Banker. Um, I'd gone from there to Newsday, and from there I'd gone to the Wall Street Journal to, um, of all things, write about the bond market. Um, it wasn't exactly something that I thought was particularly <laughs> scintillating at the time, although it, I can still actually explain bond duration uh, to my Fred mother. What Fred can't see over his left shoulder is Bridget's <laughs> eyes slowly closing. I was like, ooh, bond, bond market. That makes my uh, eyes close. No, no, no. I mean, I, 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 I think that I've gone from – um, one topic that makes people want to run out of the room screaming to another. <laughs> I want to get to that. Uh, well, that's where we're going. On day, yeah. So, but the journal and I didn't get along, and uh, I wound up working for some people that didn't, uh, I didn't see eye to eye to, and... Uh, did you storm out? Um, no, I did. I did get mad at my editor one Sunday when I had been working, like, three weeks straight without a break and say, um, you know, if you weren't such an asshole, blah, 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 blah. And I think I got me on double secret probation. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine, I mean, he's a double negative. I can't imagine that hadn't happened before. Um, It's a little outspoken. It hadn't happened before. Um, Not from you, but editors must get that thrown at them. Oh, yeah, but the trouble is is there are many reporters. They they have to chew out and chew and spit out many reporters before their superiors realize that that's going on. So Mm. the guy that that, um, gave me some agita ultimately um, 
they discovered that about him, but, you know, that was like five years down the line, three years down the line. Got it. Um, so I went from there to U.S. News. Um, I was there for four years. Um, I started writing about tech halfway through. Um, what year is this? 1997. So right uh, at the, not the beginning of that wave. Right. And so I wrote about tech for U.S. News until 2001, and Fortune uh, called me up and said, do you want to move to California and write for... Your dream. Uh, for us out there. And I said, yep, were I they, Were they in the Bay Area or L.A.? Um, they were in the Bay Area, which is how I got here. Uh, I I think I might have been one of the last people hired at Fortune before the roof came in. Uh, but they, they were delightful to me. And they moved me out to California. And uh, I was there for five years. And then I wound up at Wired. In 2006. So it was fairly seamless, I mean, in, in a sense, that you didn't have that period of, well, I guess I'm freelance now. Oh, my God. What am I going to do? No, I just left that part out. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fred's story is sanitized for your protection. A good part of the story. No, no, no. I mean, uh, there were... I think it's a very relevant part of the story. There, there, yes, there, sure. there, there, there were... There were a couple of periods in there where I thought, um, do I need to keep doing this? Should I keep doing this? Uh, And the answer always was yes. So when – so I'd been at the American Banker for – I'd been at the American Banker for three or four years and had been trying to get out of there. This is in the early 1990s and couldn't. And so one day I realized that like staying there was actually taking me down. The the paper was going down and it was taking me and my career down with it. And I finally decided that I was going to leave without a job. That's a really tough decision to make because it's still stability. Oh, yeah. And it it was – and it's a little bit like, you know, it's like any breakup – you have to spend a long time feeling like you need to get out of there before you finally get to that point. And I think I felt like I needed to get out of there for probably a year or two before I finally decided that I needed to do that. But that was because I tried to get a bunch of jobs uh, to get me out of there, and I couldn't get them. And so I finally got to the point where I realized, well, um, if this is the last job I'm going to have um, in journalism, uh, then I want to go do something else. And, you know, at that point I was... What would you have done? I have no idea. <laughs> but I wasn't making... It's Try not like I was making a huge amount of... I think I was making like $40,000 a year or something like that. So it's not like I was making a huge amount of money. I think what I ultimately concluded was that... Um, I hated my, I hated the job so much that I was prepared to like join the union and pick up trash um, instead of good benefits instead of staying. I mean that sounds that's obvi- obviously euphemistic, but my point is is that I really got to the point where I was prepared to walk and not uh, and. F- knew that at that point I was 31 or something like that. I had a pretty lot of confidence in my ability to figure out uh, what I was going to do next. I mean, I didn't have a family. Uh, I wasn't married. No, I take that back. I got married. I was married. I got married when I was 28. Strike that. Evelyn, I hope you're not listening. (laughs) I hope you are, Evelyn. Uh, (laughs) I – and so I – I thought about a bunch of different things, and after a few months gone, went by, somebody I knew call, from Newsday called me up and asked me if I wanted to try to do some freelance stuff for them. And so that led to um, him calling me up and saying, well, how about if you just kind of come here on contract? You know. And so I was there for a little bit, and then I left there uh, – and was in between gigs between there and the Wall Street Journal for a little bit as well. Um, and at that point, I actually thought about going into government and thought about doing it seems like, yeah. stuff like that. And 
again, every time I wound up thinking about doing something else, I realized that, no, I actually really and truly wanted to keep doing this. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up government. I knew a lot of people when I was at the Examiner, because it paid so little, who would jump ship to go into government, who would go to do PR for government agencies. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so we got you to Wired. So now let's get you to the publication of your book, Dogfight. Great book. Well-received. Well-received, yeah. Timely. Um, Timely. Um, Made you a a tech titan. uh, Absolutely, without question. Yeah. (laughs) You have no idea how Fred, this, big this, this I am. It's a pretty small room, Fred. We, we can't contain your ego in it. If, um, actually, actually, you could have the ego the size of an ant, and it would be too big for this room <laughs> for all of you guys trying to kind of actually visualize where we are. Fred, I love you for this because we've had a little bit of feedback that Larry and stop I talking about the room on and on about how small it is, but it's so freaking small. You can't think about anything else. Small and here. airless. I, I think it's the airless part that like, actually it is. I, but we won't talk about the room. I know we could. No. Die in here. We've mentioned we those. could die in here, and there's no one at the grotto today, so it would take a long time for them to find our carcasses. Uh, so, give me, you know, I having not written, certainly not a journalist, a book of journalism, a timely book of journalism myself, give me an idea of how, you know, the germ of the idea did it start with you? Was it suggested to you? What was the genesis of the book? The genesis, the genesis of the book was uh, a story I did for Wired. Uh, it really was that simple. And that's how a lot of journalist nonfiction books start, actually. Fred, can you give us the whole title? Because we just said Dogfight, and I can't remember the subtitle. Oh, it's called Dogfight, How Apple and Google Went to War and Started a Revolution. Yeah. There it, is. it was published in 2013 by Sir Crichton Books uh, for Ostras and Giroux. Yeah. Nice. And I left that part out of the intro. Nice work, Rosen. Um, now we have it. Now we have it. So I, so I wrote a piece... When I was at Wired in 2007, uh, the iPhone had just come out. Uh, Wired was trying to figure out how to write about it. I said, why don't you let me try to do the backstory about how the whole thing got put together? So I started – so it started – I don't know where I'm going to pick this up. Go for it. Um, But I'll start start at the beginning. Okay. Um, Wired was looking for someone to actually write about how – write about the iPhone, I said, why don't we try to do a backstory uh, piece? They said, but it's about Apple. Apple never talks. Nobody's going to figure out how to be able to, nobody's going to let you talk. How are you going to do that? And I said, why don't you give me a few weeks and see what I can find? Uh, I think that I can find some people to talk for the following reasons. One, they're partners with uh, AT&T, and I think AT&T feels left out of the process, and I think that they're going to want to talk. Uh, but I also think that this is a pretty seminal product, and one of the things that Apple does really well is put Steve Jobs in front of the world and have him make it seem like he just pulled this thing out of his pocket. But I know that that's not true. I know that there's zillions of people who killed themselves to work on this, and all I have to do is find them. And what I've discovered is about engineers is that if you give them a chance to actually talk about the blood, sweat, and tears that they went through to actually put something together, they'll actually, uh, some of them will actually want to spend some time telling you about that. And so I found a couple, and when we were, when I was done with the piece, one of them said, you know, a bunch of us have been talking about putting a book together um, about everything we went through, and I didn't say that I was going to like follow up on that. That just seemed like sort of a side conversation that we'd had. But it did get me thinking that maybe I should be the person to do that project. And it kind of grew out of that. And you had never written a book before, right? No, I had never written a book before. But by the time I pitched it, I had written – another story or two about the iPhone's evolution and its competition with Android. And the way I had put it to the way I just thought about the book was I thought about it as 10 or 10 magazine stories. Hmm, yeah. Um, and that was, but even though I hadn't written a book before, one of the things that journalists one of the edges that journalists sometimes have is that they know other journalists who have written books. And so some of the process that uh, – some of the early parts of the process 
some of the early hurdles in the process are easier to get over. So, such as well, so such as finding an agent, right? Mm-hmm. So when I when I realized that I wanted to put a book together, I knew I needed a a book proposal together. I knew I needed an agent, and so you know. But because I'd been a journalist for a long time, I was able to call Stephen Levy and uh, Joan O'Sara and um, a couple of other people I knew, um, all of whom had, you know were very well known, very well regarded journalists, and say, you know, who do you like? Uh, and they nicely recommended me to some people. And so one week I went to New York and went to say hello to a handful of them and picked one and. That's how it. That's how it developed. Uh, right. That's a, that's a big difference from most people's experience. Right. In looking for an agent. Yeah. Right. I mean, and so you know, I, so I had both. So I had both a reference as well as a track record of being able to put together um, long form narrative stories, and so that gave. I think that gave some people confidence, um, at least to make a small investment in time in me. Now, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's the second time I said that, which must mean I'm interrupting a lot. Um, so since then, you know, you, you've done quite a few things. You were involved with that biotech uh, publication for about a year or so. But I know the thing that you've been working on the most is the story about your son. And I know you had a book proposal. I watched you put this thing together, and I don't know what the status of it right now. But I wanted to talk a little bit about that for a number of reasons, and not just because it's April 20th. But also because after a career of, of working on tech and business and this and that, you chose for this project to go for something that's personal, something that you're connected to. So can you give me, give, well, me, I know the story, give our listeners the genesis of where that story came from and what the story is and where it's at now. So I'd written about, I'd written about tech my whole career um, and... Starting in about 2007 or 2000, starting in about 2008, my son got sick. Uh, he developed a very, very bad and hard to treat form of epilepsy. And nothing we tried, nothing we tried actually worked to control them. And we became cliches of desperate parents. Um, you know, and and how, we, many, how many seizures a day was he having? So he developed a pretty nasty form of what are known as um, absence seizures. Um, they're not big seizures where you flop on the ground and foam at the mouth. They last like five or ten seconds. Um, the problem is, is when they're uncontrolled, you can have like uh, dozens of them a day. I think that Sam was having uh, one every five minutes uh, at their peak. And so... And what he just sort of seemed to zone out? Yeah. I mean... In his case, he actually had a much harder to treat form of absence epilepsy because it actually had a, another component to it, which so it had a what, what people know as a, refer to as myoclonic uh, component. So, in addition to sort of zoning out, he would sort of bob at the at the waist rhythmically for about uh, ten or fifteen seconds. Um, the point is, is that like he would have, you know five to ten of these an hour all day long at when they were not being effectively treated. And we really couldn't find much. Uh, And and I think it's worth saying that that this sounds not too bad, but it means that he effectively can have no independence. No, I mean, it was was actually horrendous because it, 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 imagine, imagine living your life, uh, Imagine, imagine living your life as a kid, uh, taking the world in on a bad cell phone connection. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just keeps cutting out. It just keeps cutting out all the time. Eventually, you kind of give up, I think. And, and socially, it's incredibly difficult. And socially, it was incredibly difficult. And What about developmentally? Um, I think that Sam is um, developmentally behind. I mean, he's not developmentally delayed. He's just... Uh, because he missed so much, I would say that he's probably a couple of years behind people who are who are his age. The good news is is that everything that we did ultimately wound up working. Um, he's been seizure free for almost a year and a half, and uh, as a result of being desperate parents, 
we accidentally helped jumpstart the development of a new drug to treat epilepsy. The reason it's relevant to 420 is, is that it actually happens to be based on uh, and derived from a cannabis plant. It's a drug known as Epidiolex that's made by a drug company in the UK known as GW Pharmaceuticals. But uh, Sam turned out to be the first person to try this medicine. Uh, so going back to 2012, uh, you know, we were he was the only thing that was controlling his seizures in 2012 was um, massive doses of prednisone, and that for anybody that knows anything about prednisone is realizes that, that that's the sort of thing that you can't do long term. It leaves you. I mean, it takes its toll on you, right? Yeah, I mean, un- unfortunately, prednisone is one of these things that uh, uh, has horrible side effects if you're on it for more than like a few weeks and he was on it for the better course better part of a year um and so we heard that cannabis could be that this compound in cannabis known as cannabidiol or cbd could be really really helpful in helping uh epileptic patients um but we there certainly was no data showing that uh so we spent six months trying to source that from local growers and distillers, for lack of a better way of putting it. And what we discovered was that the market back in 2012 was entirely geared toward people getting high. And it was virtually impossible to try to find anybody who could uh, try to find anything that was high in CBD that wouldn't actually get your kid uh, stoned, and so, um, and that would make you bad parents. It would have made it well, by, yeah. by, but I mean by by the by the politics, by the legal whatever. You know, you can't just be well. Also, you. also, also, it was just trading one one horrible one right. horrible side effect for another. Right, mm. right, right. Um, and so, we read Evelyn read, and you know, one of the things you do when you become like this kind of a parent is. You start reading stuff in medical journals. Evelyn read something in a journal called Seizure about, uh, which is published by, published in the UK, um, that thanked at the end um, a company called GW Pharmaceuticals um, for supplying CBD and THC for the trials and whatnot. And she said, well, here we are in the U.S. trying to figure out a way to get access to this compound, CBD, and here's this company in the U.K. that's obviously sitting on a pile of it, and they're sitting on a pile of pharmaceutical-grade CBD. All we have to do is figure out a way to get to them, and maybe like they'll let us try some of the CBD they have and help Sam. Um, that sounds really, really easy. Uh, that sounds really, really crazy when I talk about it now. Uh, but it gives you some sense of the desperation that we felt. The short answer to the question is, is using some using some family contacts, we actually got to the guy, and he actually said yes. It's amazing. And you wrote a story for the New York Times Magazine about it. I wrote I wrote a story I wrote a story for Wired about okay, that. Wired. Um, I wrote a story for the New York Times Magazine um, back in 2010 about a crazy diet that we were on. Oh, that's right. Mm, that's I right. mixed the two up. My um, mistake. No, no, no. Um, I most people don't most people don't ever write about their kids' journeys. Right. Um, so, so there are not that many. So there are not that many many people who write about their kids' journeys twice. Uh, um, I'm not sure. Um, I guess the reason I did it. Well, I know the reason I did it uh, in both cases. Tell us, Fred. Was that I had enough journalism friends and other friends who basically said, there are not that many people in your shoes Mm -hmm. who can get a story about the issues that people have getting treated for epilepsy uh, anywhere. Um, So... If you can get a story about your journey in places like the New York Times and Wired, it's your obligation to do it. And I agree. I mean, I think that uh, it's 
you know, the thing that most people don't realize about epilepsy is that uh, it's untreatable 30% of the time. And there are a lot of people who suffer from it. So 1% of the U.S. population and 1% of the world population suffers from epilepsy. That means that um, in the U.S., 3 million people have epilepsy and 1 million of them are not treatable. So there's, it's a really, really big number. And so I felt like it was um, – and we felt as a family it was our responsibility to – Did you talk about it as a family? Yeah, absolutely. We talked about it as a family extensively actually because one of the things you realize as a journalist is that uh, with publicity, uh, there are th- – there, there are downsides to publicity right. as well as upsides to publicity. And so we talked about whether or not we were prepared to endure any of the downsides uh, in exchange for the upsides. And the uniform answer was yeah. And because in both cases, you could be targets as parents, both the diet and the drug derived from cannabis, um, of you know just doing things that other people feel free to judge and to be negatively judged. We talked a lot about that. Yeah. And what was the response? Believe it or not, I didn't actually see. I'm sure there were some people who privately thought uh, things that privately thought nasty things, but I didn't really see that much of it. I said there was a little bit of it um, because the New York Times has such a mm-hmm. enormous reach and such a big uh, set of comments. Uh, you know, there were some people who made some cracks when the when the first piece I did came out in 2010. Um, but there were also a lot of people who jumped on those people to tell them to kind of take a pill. Uh, I, I think it's worth saying that it was about a diet that is high in fat at a time when people were freaking out about fat. Yes. So the first piece. So the first piece I did about. Sam was for the New York Times Magazine in 2010, and at that point, the only thing that was controlling his seizures was uh, something called the ketogenic diet, which is a diet that uh, essentially is Atkins on steroids. Um, everything that you put in your mouth has to be weighed on a scale, and when I say everything, I mean everything, uh, and uh, it has to be exactly um, everything that you have to, everything that you eat has to match a three to one ratio of fat to uh, carbohydrates. To give you some perspective on what that what that means, um, there are only two foods. Um, uh, actually, only one food that no, there are only two foods that are that high in fat: coconut and macadamia nuts. Everything else you have to add cream to. So it turns out that bacon is actually not fatty enough. Um, uh, so the amount of effort that you had to go through to actually um, make this diet work, and we did it for two years, uh, is uh, is actually backbreaking. Um, but it's also super weird, and uh, enough people told and, me that I should write about it that yeah. I felt like I needed to. And say you're you know, a professional family in San Francisco and around San Francisco, and you have a wacky diet that your kid is part of, it, it's easy to to be a kind of demographic people think to write that off as wacky yeah. wacky San Franciscans. Yeah. Well, and actually one of the, when I wrote that story, one of the things that I found very very difficult about it was to what was um was to make sure that I didn't go into that territory. So what made the story what made the story work wasn't the fact that we were doing it and it was working. It was the fact that um, it had actually been been proven in peer-reviewed journals um, to be effective and was actually being prescribed by some of the top neurologists in right. the country for, for their patients. And so um, one of the things that I was trying to make sure – to do when I wrote about it was to make sure that people understood the history of uh, the diet in a way that didn't make them think it was crazy, even though it sounded really crazy uh, at first glance. So, and we're actually getting close to running out of time, but so so where does, I was going to ask where the drug stands now as far as getting it legalized in the U.S. and, and what role you feel like you've played in doing that, have you have you become a journalist activist, a la Chris Cook? 
No, I have not become a journalist <laughs> activist. Um, but I actually think that I can do more by not being an activist. Um, mm. But that's just me. Um, but I think so where the drug so let me back up a little bit blah 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 um, that was the sound of Fred backing up mm-hmm. okay rewind I'm hoping you're going to cut that um, of course you're not you've Probably. said that more than any other guest I don't think we cut anything no, we're just going to let her rip uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. only if Larry says something right remember because like I'm in charge of you editing you and I are being hung out to dry oh, <laughs> all right um I one of the things that I hoped when we when Sam so Sam we went to London in the uh at the end of 2012 to try this uh cannabis drug. Um Sam responded almost overnight. Uh it took 90% of his 95% of his seizures away within 36 hours. Uh Oh my god. What does feel like for you guys? Um Hard to describe, yeah. uh, um, but obviously we were very excited about that. Um, but it was a it was not a straight line because uh, as a res- this company is a public company, and so they were not going to let us take any of this stuff back to the U.S. with them with us. Um, did they, you ever consider moving to England? I did. Uh, we so we spent the next four months or five months getting an application together through and got it through the D, the FDA as well as the DEA to get official permission to import their medication uh, to the United States and have it dispensed by our doctor at UCSF. Um, but as a result of that and as a result of Sam's success on the drug, the company thought that maybe it was worth exploring uh, how the drug worked on other kids and so they started investigating doing bigger trials and those trials turned out to be so successful that they ultimately decided to develop a drug out of it and that drug has now been tested on probably more than 2,000 kids at uh, four dozen hospitals around the U.S., and uh, has passed its second or third phase three trial and will probably be available at Walgreens um, uh, by the end of 2018. Uh, so It's incredible. And so, you played a large role in that. I suppose. Um, you know, I think that accidentally, accidentally we helped jumpstart the development of a drug. Um, you know, and I feel I, it cost a lot of money to do, and so I feel very, very pleased that the company decided to go forward with this. I told them I hoped that they would do that, but I didn't know whether or not they were actually going to do it. Um, you know, you, this and this is a drug that actually helps kids like Sam who are not actually treated treatable by anything else. And so, um, you know, it's not a replacement drug, it's actually a drug that it's works. Drug. It's actually a drug that works when everything else doesn't work, and so that makes it a very powerful thing. And I'm really, really glad about the direction it's going. Um, a number of people have asked me what I think about what the current administration is doing and how they think about cannabis, and I would be really, really surprised if they were able to get away, get in the way of this. Or really the cannabis um, movement generally. Um, in this specific case, the Justice Department would have to figure out a way to say that the opinion of a slew of top neurologists gathering scientific data and the approval of the FDA um, didn't matter Uh in order for them to keep this drug from being approved, um, but as for the, the 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 stuff that isn't made by pharmaceutical companies, I think that that's a similar situation, right? Because at this point, you've got eight states where 
cannabis is as legal as alcohol, not to mention like the dozens more where medical cannabis is actually okay. Um, I think it's really at this point a political non-starter for uh, the Justice Department to get in the way. I mean, the one thing that Jeff Sessions understands um, is politics, and so he may under- he, he may have his own personal views about all of these, um, but you don't get to be uh, in the Senate as long as Jeff Sessions has uh, without actually knowing how to pick your battles. Interesting. Well said. Uh, and to wrap it up, so is there going to be a book? What is the status of your proposal? I put the book on hold because I hold. couldn't sell it, believe it or not. This magical story. I know. It is astonishing. That is sort of a... You never know. I, I remember you plugging away at that in, in frustration, but, um, well, that's too bad. I, you know, I think that I, it's, it's interesting. Perspective is everything. And I think that uh, I thought because I was so close to it, I decided that I was actually late, and so uh, I kind of really felt under a fair amount of pressure to try to get a book proposal together before anybody else did it. And what I think I came understood from the reactions I got from people was that I'm just early. Um, hmm. I thought I was a couple of years late, and I actually think that I'm um, two or three years too early. Well, sure, because you've been in the middle of it this whole time. You so figured this has been going on forever. Right, and so I think that... I, I think that, um, you know, once it starts to become clear that this drug is going to get approval, and that will probably take until this time next year, um, I don't know what kind of interest there's going to be in the book proposal, but I think once that happens, I think it'll be, uh, I think I'll take another whack at it, and um, I suspect it'll be an easier sell then. Something to look forward to. And well, also, oh. thank you for your persistence and for that long view. Yeah, we don't give more. up, Fred. Fred Vogelstein on the spot, Grotto Pod guest. Thank you for coming to the Grotto Pod today. How can people get a hold of you? I am really easy to get a hold of. Um, I'm at fvogelstein at gmail, and uh, I have a website, and uh, all my information is there. Uh, if you, this sounds so modern and cliched, but believe it or not, if you actually Google Fred Vogelstein, I think it's pretty easy to figure out um, what I'm doing and where I'm at. Yeah, and that like website it. is fredvogelstein.com. Uh, as for me, you can find me here. At the Grotto Pod? At the Grotto Pod. At my other podcast, Is It Good for the Jews? Uh, Twitter at that Larry Rosen. BQ. BQ. At bquintrest or bridgetquinnauthor.com. And Larry, I would like to thank our producers. For the Grotto Pod, Lori Ann Doyle, Lee Kravitz, and Beth Weingartner. We could not do this without them, for sure. Clearly. And remember, everything. If, and, <laughs> and remember, if you want to email us, grottopod at gmail, uh, Twitter at the grottopod. BQ, take us home. Okay, Grotto Land, read, write, and just keep working like Fred. Like Fred. All right, open the door and get us out of here. Oh, my God, we're going to die. Mm-hmm.